This is the American Military Brit. Shedding light on the realities of military life. Now, here's your host, U.S. Air Force Staff Sergeant Christopher Clark. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American Military Brit Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk to different military members to figure out the full story about the military, and we don't just focus on the rumors, such as the Marines being crazy or the Army being stupid. We actually figure out from the people themselves what the story is with the military. So I hope you enjoy this podcast that we have for you today. Hello, welcome to the American Military Brit Podcast. So for the podcast today, we've got a special guest. This is going to be our first army guest that we've had on the podcast. Um, so I'm quite excited about this one. Um, Ross here, he has a lot of army experience, a lot of military experience. So uh, just to kind of start off here, just kind of introduce yourself, like who you are, what you currently do right sure, now. Sure, I'm honored to be here. My name is Ross Bryant, and I am a retired army major. I served uh, almost 25 years of service from 1979 when I enlisted out of high school to be a tank driver and uh, then went to ROTC during my career and was a career officer with my final assignment as the commander of the UNLV Army ROTC here in Las Vegas. And I continue to work at UNLV as the director of the Veterans Center, serving about 1,800 vets and military family members at UNLV. Okay. And as far as like getting into the army, was there a specific moment as far as like something that happened that made you want to get into ar- the army and you know serve? In yeah, the it's nothing uh, glorious. It's sort of a funny story. I grew up in a uh, a very very tight military naval academy family. My grandfather was naval academy nineteen twenty four and fought in World War II uh, in Asia, and I was raised by him as a young child after my father's divorce. My uncle was Naval Academy 1948 and was an aviator, did 24 years. And then my father graduated from the Naval Academy in 1957 and was in the submarine force for 10 years active duty and another 30 years working for the Navy Department writing nuclear missile launch manuals for the Navy Hmm. and worked in the Pentagon basically my whole childhood in Virginia, where he would just transfer and drive to D.C. in in horrible commutes. So a long story short, uh, we lived on a farm, which I did not appreciate. I didn't get along with my stepmom. So my brilliant plan to be independent was to join the Army. And in the late 70s, it was the all-volunteer military. They offered a $3,000 bonus if you were to go into combat arms. So I signed up for tanks. That sounded cool. I had no idea what that was. And then uh, I was enlisted, and uh, I ended up going over to Germany during the Cold War, basically where we were uh, 500,000 troops in Europe staring down the Warsaw Pact and the Russians and East Germans back in those days. And I rose quickly through the ranks to be a tank commander at age 23 of the brand-new M1 tank that's now 40 years old. But I was in the 2nd Battalion to get that opportunity. And I had some great mentors who— talked me into going into ROTC and becoming a career officer. So I'm curious now, like, why did you join the Army versus the Navy? Because obviously you had a rich kind of Navy You know, I've always been like a rebellious kind of guy. I was uh, the middle child out of five. And uh, I wouldn't say I was not, not a question of being anyone's favorite, but I was always fiercely independent. And I wanted to become 18 and be independent. And, uh, 
During the Vietnam War, I remember watching the newsreels of soldiers uh, in combat that was in the news almost nightly. But I, I had a teacher I met in, uh, I guess it was junior high. Hmm. And this teacher had been a Vietnam vet when back then being a vet was not a good thing. But he had a very nice demeanor. He was very professional, a very sharp guy that I really admired. And he had a class that he basically had us write a paper about what is, you know, service to your country and all those kinds of things. Mm. And he did it in such a way that uh, you could tell he was conflicted by what happened in Vietnam, but he was very much a patriot. And uh, I almost think he sort of inspired me to think, hey, I'm going to go join the Army like that guy. He was such a great teacher and a mentor. You know, I was like eighth grade, but uh, still as a young kid, uh, he was pretty phenomenal. So I never really considered the Navy, I guess. And maybe I never wanted to join the Navy because I would have the generational legacy stuff that how come you enlisted in the Navy, you didn't make it to the Naval Academy thing. Mm. Whereas in the Army, I sort of had a fresh start. Next, I just wanted to talk about your basic training and, te and technical training school experience or, or whatever you call it in the Army specifically. But, you know, obviously because you went – you know, I don't want to sound insulting or anything, but you went a very long time ago. So I'm just like very curious as far as like how it's, how it's, you know, changed as far as like, you know, from then to now. Um, Cause I feel like my training experience was probably a lot easier than yours. I feel like it was a lot more difficult back then, but like how was basic training for you in the army? You know, I think compared to today, it's much more demanding in the sense that uh, in 1979, I was right out of high school when I joined and two months after high school, I, I shipped out to uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky, mm. where all tank training took place. And back then, if you were combat arms in the Army, artillery, tanks, or infantry, they did what they had called one-stop training. So you did basically eight weeks of basic training mm -hmm. and then another six weeks of individual training on how to be a tank driver or a tank loader, a crewman, basically. Right. So all at Fort Knox. So I was with the same platoon for those 14 weeks, and we had Sundays off. You would go to church and sort of hang out, but the rest of the time was pretty demanding. And a lot of the NCOs, if you think about it, Vietnam had just ended hmm. four years earlier. So the senior NCOs, the captains, all the officers were all Vietnam-era veterans that had gone to combat, who had seen combat, who were then training us and very serious about the training. And the Cold War was the big thing. 75% mm -hmm. uh, of the Army was in Europe for the Air Force and the Army. And we were staring down, you know, a million troops on the East German border for the evasion that never happened. And so everyone was focused on making sure you knew your job and all those things. And what was interesting about it, the Army was short people. And that didn't hit me until years later. So I ended up being top of my class. And back then... The quality of the recruits, unlike nowadays where you take an ASVAB test and you have to have a certain score, not everyone can serve nowadays. But back then, if you were basically breathing and in good physical condition, uh, okay. you were in. And we had some folks that uh, it was just sort of interesting. And so I ended up being like one of the few high school graduates. And because of that, I did very well in the training. And I was top of my class along with a couple colleagues of mine. And what they did is at the end of our graduation, they held on to us for another cycle and they made us acting corporals with no pay. So all of a sudden, inst instantly, I'm from a private to a corporal. They gave us some training classes and then we were acting 
tank commander holdovers is what they called us. Right. And we also did training for the next iteration of students. And if you think of that, I had no experience. So the good news is I learned even more detail because you had to learn, like, let, let's take an example. The breech block is the back of the gun tube. There's a whole mechanical way of taking that breech block down. It's very heavy, safety-wise, taking it apart, cleaning it, and putting it all back. And you learned it as a private. But now if you have to teach it, you better know how to do it. So you would practice and practice and practice. So mm -hmm. when I finally got to my unit, I had basically back-to-back -back tank training, got to my unit, and I knew more than the average private on how to be a tank crewman, which put me in good stead. But it was interesting. Everyone was very professional. No one could put hands on you. Hmm. But if you, you know, if you irritated a drill sergeant, everyone did, you know, hundred push-ups uh, until you couldn't do any more. Uh, if someone screwed up, we all would get up in the middle of the night and do exercises. Mm -hmm. uh, it made it worth your while to be a team player, but not not any kind of Hollywood kind of violence kind of thing. Okay. But I think very demanding mentally, very demanding as far as the amount of hours and stuff that we were doing, and we ran everywhere, so like right. marching and running everywhere, and so uh, it was pretty demanding when I look back at it. Yeah, um, it's it's funny though how you mentioned talking about kind of how in the army like anybody could get in pretty much, because that's something that you heard when I came in as well. It was just like, oh yeah, anybody can get in. So that is kind of a rumor at least that uh, it seems is pretty much true. I mean, you mentioned the ASVAB, and the funny thing with the ASVAB is, like, people think if they get a high score, they're so smart. Like, I was intelligence in the yeah. Air Force, so everyone who's in intelligence is like, oh, I got such a high ASVAB score. But then when I went to technical training school, it was like some of the stupidest people I met <laughs> were in to technical training school. So I'm just like, well, it doesn't really make you smart, does it, to be honest? But uh, but no, that was, that was interesting how you were just kind of talking about basic training then and... You know, it's, it kind of seems like it's the same thing, really. Well, there was also things where back then, and this happened, if you got in trouble with the law, and I'm talking like juvenile delinquent stuff, right? they would say, okay, Ross, you would have a choice between going to jail or joining the Army. Right. Yeah. And obviously the Army doesn't do that today. Yeah. But back then, to fill numbers, that was mm. – so now you have a guy who was part, sort of shady to begin with who's right. now in your platoon. Yeah. Doesn't want to be there. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't, it's not like he really volunteered. Right. You know, took the lesser of two options. So I just want to get into the different assignments that you did in um, in the Army. So, well, first of all, let me ask one question. So have you been to an Air Force base before? I'm yeah, assuming many times. Have, right? yeah, yeah, many so times. How do they compare to Army um, bases? <laughs> much more luxurious, I would say, uh, yeah. in the sense of, uh, you know, I think all the bases have the same facilities and services but i think the air force does a great job of focusing on quality of life as best they can and uh, taking care of people and the army less so the army used to always <laughs> say you know mission first people always but the soldiers would joke mission first people sometimes yeah and uh, i've experienced way too much of that but uh and it was always about the mission all the time and so uh I mean, talking about my assignments, I was blessed uh, as this young guy who had this TC holdover experience. I really went through the ranks pretty quick when I got to my unit. Right. And then I went, my first unit was nine months at Fort Knox to a training brigade, which is basically a collection of 50 tanks with a shadow crew that basically all the training units sign out those tanks. 
drive them, break them, get them dirty, and then the shadow crew has to repair them, clean them, and get them ready for the next training iteration. So not a combat unit, not a training unit, but just taking care of tanks for other people to break. Now, I hated that job because it wasn't a real mission in the sense that you're on the front line, but I learned so much because if you and I were the only two members on a four-person crew and our job is to take the broken tank, fix it, repair it, clean it, and get it ready again, Mm -hmm. you and I learned everything that could go wrong, whether a tank got stuck in the mud and had to be retrieved or whatever it might be. So when I got to Germany, my first real unit with 3rd Infantry, it turned out to be the battalion, the second battalion in the Army to get the M1 tank. Mm. And so we were on the front line with looking at East Germans, Russians, Czech units from the Warsaw Pact, reporting on them, doing drills and exercises and alerts, and I was there for three years. I rose to the ranks, and at 23 years old, I got to go through M1 tank training as a tank commander. Mm. And I had a captain who believed in me and said, in a 54 tank battalion, there's a colonel and a major who's the XO, and they all have tanks. And the major was actually an acquisition guy who helped field the tank. So when it came time for training, they had 54 full crews, and he had me be the tank commander for the major's tank. So at 23 years old, I had an 18-year-old driver, a 19-year-old loader, and a 20-year-old gunner. We were the youngest crew in the 3rd Infantry Division. And I ended up shooting high gunnery, and being the number one tank in gunnery because I was terrified of failing after giving the opportunity. And so that resulted in, you know, a commendation medal and, and notoriety in the chain of command. And then I went to the first of five NCO academies, which was a brand new thing to train the NCO Corps. So as an E5 in the Army, I got sent to this academy, and it was, you know, pretty intense, pretty harassing, pretty just, you know, cleaning bathrooms forever to have attention to detail kind of things. And I ended up being the honor grad, again, terrified of failing. And I got invited to a dinner at the base in Germany by my colonel, lieutenant colonel, a captain, and the command sergeant major. Now, when you're a young sergeant, you don't hang out with those people. And when I got invited to dinner, I was very nervous. And I remember my wife saying, uh, well, I don't think you're in trouble if they're buying you dinner on a Friday night. So I got dressed up, went to the dinner, very nervous. And what they did is they sat down me and said, Hey, we've been watching you. You're a very sharp young man with only three and a half years in the Army. Uh, We think you ought to consider the Army being a career and not Mm re-enlisting. You need to get out and go what's called green to gold to Army ROTC and becoming an officer. And the fact that they invested their time of their busy schedules to invest in me, to give me that advice, I took it all. And I went to ROTC, got my commission, and went back. So at the end of the day... I had three years in Germany for the premier mission of training for World War III if it was to break out, and this was during the era of Reagan and Mm -hmm. missiles in Europe and all that stuff. Then I went to ROTC and came back in. I got to go to airborne school and learn how to be a paratrooper Mm -hmm. and a tanker as as an officer, which is hard to get, very competitive. And then I went to 1st Armored Division, and again, I was in Germany for three years, and I spoke German after college, mm. so I could you know, articulate and speak and read and help my soldiers with rental contracts and everything. Uh, right. And I was on duty when the wall came down. So it was fascinating when the wall came down, the Army never had a plan for world peace to break out. Mm. And so everything got pulled off the border, East and West Germany united, and then all of a sudden all the adventures in the Middle East happened right after that. All right. And so those things resulted at the end of my career. 
I didn't. I did not go to Iraq. I was not in Desert Storm. I was in Germany during Desert Storm, where long time before your generation, uh, we sent troops to the Gulf for uh, Desert Shield, which was a defensive action. Right. And after nine months, Iraq would not leave Kuwait. And then we had what was called Desert Storm to push them out of Kuwait. Mm-hmm. And the punch power for the offensive came from Europe, where over 100,000 troops from Europe were deployed with all their equipment from Germany to the Middle East for the attack that was Desert Storm. I was in Germany during that time, so as mm-hmm. a German-speaking guy, I worked all the railheads with the safety people, got tanks out of there, uh, worked around the clock with no days off to support did all those things, and it was a tough time to be on the sidelines when the whole army went to war. And that war was very quick and over in 100 hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after that, I went back to the States, and I was stationed at Fort Stewart, Georgia, mm-hmm. which was the only rapid deployment heavy tank uh, division in the army. Mm-hmm. And we put stuff on fast ships to Somalia. We put planes in the air to Somalia with tanks. We did all those things from Fort Stewart. Uh, I deployed to Egypt. We deployed to Haiti. We did all these things uh, after Haiti was supposed to be uh, uh, an overthrow of the government because they had had a coup that happened. Mm -hmm. And Cedrus took the money, but then we went down there for hurricane support. It sounds like you have a lot of deployment experience, so we'll just kind of get into that. But you said you said you never went to Iraq or Afghanistan. No, all of that happened when I was the commander of ROTC. Right. And this was my last assignment, and I retired in 2005. Okay. But I commissioned 77 officers who then went on to multiple deployments. Right. The ones that are still serving are majors and lieutenant colonels. And we had our first guy we commissioned in 1999, our first cadet. Uh, he pinned on 06 colonel this year and is now at the War College before he takes a brigade command at Fort Bragg. Okay, so like Germany was more like an assignment. So like what was your, I mean, as far as what you can actually talk about, I don't know yeah, if yeah, stuff is classified, yeah. but uh, like what deployments have you done? So in Germany, we back then, you had your families and everyone stationed there, and then they would have monthly alerts in case you had to get on your vehicle. And it's hard to picture now, but we used to do maneuvers across Germany in the wintertime. So like if you were a German farmer, you would wake up and you had no say and here's 10 tanks driving across your field, right. <laughs> parked in your backyard uh, doing training. Uh, you get on the highway to go to work and there's a column of military vehicles in convoy blocking traffic. Right. And it was okay. just the norm and helicopters flying over all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing too is back then, if you were on tanks with us, they were all combat loaded. All the ammunition in your tank was ready to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you would pick up your machine gun ammunition and your firing pin for the main gun if they had the alert. And you would put your fill in your radio and you had two hours to get out of the motor pool and get to your defensive position right. before World War III would break out. So that was routine. Um, then when I was stationed stateside, uh, I got to deploy to Kuwait. It wasn't combat. But after Desert Storm, we left equipment in the Middle East ready to go, and Saddam was still in power, Mm. and he was testing the United States, I think it was around 1995, and he basically had all of his Republican guards gather on the border like he was gonna invade again. Mm -hmm. And instantly, we all flew over from Fort Stewart, and I was on one of the first planes. And it was interesting, we had a lot of young privates who said, hey, 
are we going to war? But a lot of people on the plane were Desert Storm uh, veterans who said, yeah, you know, it's not really a war until you see Christian Amanpour from CNN, who at that time <laughs> had been the premier war correspondent. All right. So when we landed in Kuwait, probably if you went to Kuwait, same airport. I stopped there a little bit. And uh, we got off the plane, and there's Christian Amanpour. <laughs> and the interesting thing is they had us get off the plane, reload on the plane, a bunch of times that from the distance it looked like we had 3,000 guys, not 500, right. and they were trying to feed that to Saddam so he would uh, not invade, which he did not. Mm. So we were there, for, deployed for a couple of weeks, and were ready on the border in case other stuff happened. Other units were alerted to come over, and then all that calmed down. Then when we were back at Fort Stewart, the Somalia thing happened where the Rangers were shot up in Somalia, mm. 10th Mountain was already deployed there from the United States, and for the first time ever, we flew M1 tanks and Bradleys on these huge C-5 aircraft that were replaced by the C-17. Yeah. And you could put two M1 tanks combat loaded, 60-ton vehicles on the back of one of those planes. You've probably seen them. Yeah. And you could throw a football in the air hangar and not hit anything. <laughs> uh, and that thing took off and landed and didn't crash. But we flew 17 tanks and 13 Bradleys. And every C-5 in the fleet, I'm not sure how many there were, let's say there was 20 of those aircraft, right. they all arrived at Fort Stewart on the same day when President Clinton alerted uh, tanks to go to Somalia. Okay. And back then in that conflict, it was a short conflict where our guys on the ground were surrounded by armed mobs of people that were angry and not turning back and a pilot got shot down and two rangers were killed and they got the Medal of Honor. But when the tanks arrived, everybody dissipated because there was no other enemy that could combat the tanks, and the tanks secured the area until we left. All right. So when all those things happened, it was sort of a, an interesting thing because the rangers who lost their lives in Somalia were from my community. Mm. So you would be in a civilian suburb of the base, and down the street, a couple ranger families lost people over there. So it became sort of a personal thing on the base when everybody went over. Hmm. So I, I did not deploy, but I had been trained in load masting. For, I went down to the School of Florida, and I was the Army guy who would prep equipment to be put on the plane. And then, of course, a, a chief in the Air Force was the guy who would decide if the balance was right. So I got called to be at the airfield for all of that hmm. to get all those vehicles out of there. And it was fascinating to watch a national alert where when the president said go, all those planes flew from all over the all over the world mm -hmm. to land at one base and load up and get out of there. It was fascinating to watch. Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe you didn't you you retired from the army, right? I did. That's why you separated. Yeah, because I just because just like kind of talk about how I guess you were forced to separate then in a, in a sense because you retired, but. Like, no, was no. that the reason that you got out, or could you have gone longer? You know, I would say that when you're a young soldier and you're not decided if you're going to be a career soldier, let's say you have less than 10 years, and you watch all these senior folks who are acclimated to the culture, and let's say you're up at 4 a.m. for an operation, you're like, am I the only one who realized that we got up at 4 a.m.? Right. And then all of a sudden you become that guy when you're used to the culture. But like many careers, I remember a guy saying, you'll know when it's time to retire. Mm -hmm. So I did not have to retire, but because I was enlisted five years, I had close to 25 years of service. I'm a senior major. Mm -hmm. And I had just had seven years here 
training cadets. So I stood up the program. I was asked by the Army to extend twice. We had reservists that we trained to help train cadets. It was a test program that did very well. And then uh, I had some opportunities after 9-11. I had a master's in counterterrorism and national security studies in 95 that the Army paid for to be a Ukrainian foreign area officer that did not happen. Hmm. Interesting, all the Ukrainian stuff going right, on. Yeah. But back then they had negotiated Ukraine to get rid of nuclear weapons and everyone guaranteed their sovereignty over Russian invasion. Right. And now here we are. Anyway, um, I had opportunities to work at an institute here that did Homeland Security training for the Strip on counterterrorism, what are suspicious indicators, not people. Like if you parked a car, what would things you'd be looking for? If you're a housekeeping, what are suspicious indicators in a room, not people? And then what would you do with those things? So long story short, I had this job lined up, and I said, you know, I think it's time to retire. And personally, in my personal life, I met a beautiful young woman in California. Her husband had died in Desert Storm. We met at an event giving out scholarships in his name. His name is Major Tom Zugner. He was killed in Desert Storm. Did not know him, but I had his job at Cal State training cadets, mm -hmm. his last assignment. Uh, we were an item. We were exclusive. We were engaged. We knew I had four years left, and the deal was when you're done playing Army, because I'm not going to be married to the Army, uh, I'm not going to go through that again. Mm. And so we made that deal. And then uh, we were all set to get out, get married, and I had a Homeland Security job. And when I put in my retirement packet one year out, the Army came back and said, you're on the lieutenant colonel's list, mm. which they had told me I would never make. Right. But things had changed. And I said, well, where am I going? Can I deploy with a unit? They're like, nope, you've been off of tanks for seven years. Uh, we need you at the Pentagon, mm -hmm. basically in operations, which is a thankless job. I, the people who do it, hats off to them. But you work like 70 hours a week, and you're making briefings for generals. And a lieutenant right. colonel at the Pentagon is like a private in the army. Yeah, that's what I've heard. <laughs> and uh, the you know, and living there is expensive, and commuting there is crazy. And I just didn't want any part of that. So I turned down Lieutenant Colonel, which a lot of my peers and said, my God, you turned down Lieutenant Colonel, why would you do that? Mm. Well, I wasn't gonna be with troops again. And I had just had seven years of training troops here and preparing them for really the real world and the war that was going on mm. that we did very successful at. So I felt like it was time. For those who don't know, that's actually how I met Ross was through the Military Veterans Services Center here on, on UNLV, so just wanted to kind of throw that plug in. But I did want to really quickly talk about like kind of DUIs and the fact that DUIs are an issue in yep. the military. So I had a lot of couple of friends who um, were forced to separate or they like, you know, just got like some serious like actions against them just because of DUIs. But I remember talking to you before and you were talking about how you had a couple of troops like have DUIs and stuff like that. Yeah, so, so DUIs became a problem for the Army always. Right. And in the 90s, they did a study that some 600 soldiers a year were killed in DUIs, not mm -hmm. counting the people they killed. Right. So it became a big focus that if you got a DUI, you were out of the service. And so uh, in my one tank unit, I was in command for, I think I had uh, 510 days of command. 
and I have a streamer that says no DUIs for 510 days. All right. And we did briefings. We did things above and beyond saying, hey, don't drink and drive. What I did one time was I took one of the most popular junior soldiers. Everyone liked this guy. His name was Chris. Hmm. And I had him not come into work one day. And I got in front of the formation and said, hey, I literally told a story and said, regrettably, Chris was killed in a DUI last night. Hmm. And everyone was shocked. And then I had him walk in. And I hmm. said to everyone, now the way you felt when I told you that, I apologize for lying to you. But I want to hammer down that I could tell you every day and it just becomes rhetoric. Hmm. But the feeling you had that, oh my God, Chris died, that feeling is real. I've had it way too many times in other units uh, where we lost somebody. Uh, one story that sticks with me that was so tragic is we deployed to Egypt for a training exercise for five weeks. I didn't bring that up. And uh, mm. we're in the Egyptian desert on tanks for like five weeks straight. Right. And the chaplain came to see me. And one of my young soldiers, his, his wife, who had been pregnant and their child, had been killed in a DUI back at the base. All right from a drunk soldier from another unit. And so the impact on that young man where we had to literally send him home, emergency leave with the tank commander to look after him because we were concerned about his own mental health well, and well-being. And so mm -hmm. the impact of those things are serious. And it was always, and back in those days too, there was a lot of cultural drinking was sort of the norm. I mean, mm -hmm. you would go to the officer's club on a Friday and, you know, get hammered and take a cab home. But, uh, Everyone was really focused on DUIs, and even with all the deployments and all the war that's gone on for 20 times, there's many stories of vets that come to the vet center where they came back from a deployment and were letting off steam and celebrating their survival, so to speak, and then a party night turned into a tragic DUI that mm -hmm. resulted in someone's career being over or, worse yet, somebody injured. And so right. DUIs are always a big thing, and it's always about taking care of each other and Hey, look, if you're going to go have a good time, call me and I'll come pick you up. You know what I mean? Hmm. And uh, so, yeah. And uh, going to someone's funeral over something like that is always just devastating yep. because all of that's very preventable. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, fortunately for me, I've never known anybody who's passed away during one. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just glad. I just wanted to speak about that just so that people realize how serious it is. But... Um, yeah, just want to thank you, Ross, for coming on the podcast today because that was some great insight. Well, you know, so, Chris, you yeah. uh, were supposed to say that you used to work for me and you were one of our top employees, right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, sure, you can throw that in. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, yeah, thank you very much for coming thank on. Thank you, sir. Seriously.